live from the New York Stock Exchange. I'm Paula Newton sitting in for Julia Chatterley. And here is what you need to know right now. The Federal Reserve has a split personality. Minutes show policymakers singing from very different hymn sheets. We'll call it singing. It's actually Fed talk. And you're going to get a lot more of it in a second. Now, the chosen one, President Trump, hits a nerve talking about the trade war with China. And working the room, Britain's Boris Johnson meets with Emmanuel Macron ahead of that all-important G7 meeting. It's Thursday, and this is First Move. Welcome to First Move. Good to have you with us. Okay, there's a whole lot of excitement on trading floors behind me today as the annual conference of central bankers gets underway in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And there will be a whole lot more to discuss amid those new signs of slowing global growth and, of course, that trade war with China. Now, they have also a new warning for the United States. As we await a deluge of what we'll call Fed talk, as you can see, it's looking like a modestly higher open uh, for stocks after a pretty strong day of trade uh, on Wednesday. You have to say as well, earlier futures were down. They are now up. Remember that on Wednesday, all the major averages closed up about 1%. Stocks rose despite another recessionary warning sign in the bond market. Yep, this happened. The yield curve on the two and 10 year treasuries inverted for the second time in two weeks. That said, UF stocks have risen in four of the past five trading sessions. Not bad, right? Tech stocks have risen more than 3% just in the past week alone. Hopes for new stimulus in various parts of the world have fueled that advance, uh, as well as, of course, that strong earnings uh, outlook from major U.S. Uh, retailers. As usual, it is the American consumer there doing the heavy lifting. Now, in Europe, stocks are mixed with new numbers from Germany showing manufacturing activity contracting again this month. That is a really worrying signal. Factory orders there fell at its fastest pace in six years. Meantime, Asian stocks finished mixed. New numbers show manufacturing weakening for the fourth straight month in Japan. Now, in the meantime, this is what we see this global consensus on cutting those interest rates. Indonesia cut interest rates again in response to those low growth fears. Meantime, China said again today, Here's the warning that it will retaliate if the U.S. goes ahead with those new tariffs on September 1st. Yep, that's less than two weeks from today. Okay, we want to get straight to your drivers. The Jackson Hole meeting comes after it emerged that the Fed was split over last month's rate cut. Now, all eyes, of course, will be watching Jerome Powell ahead of his speech there as investors look for clues as what the heck you do next. One who will also be looking closely is President Trump. Yep, no surprise to you. He's tweeting again this morning. I give you his tweet. Germany sells 30-year bonds offering negative yields. Germany competes with the USA. Our Federal Reserve does not allow us to do what we must do. They put us at a disadvantage against our competition. Strong dollar, no inflation. They move like quicksand. And here are the final thoughts from the president this morning. Fight or go home. Matt Egan joins me now. Okay, fight or go home. As if there wasn't enough pressure on the Fed, especially after we saw those minutes, right? Matt, that said, look, they are at best data dependent, but at worst, there's really no consensus there on where this Fed wants to go on those rates. And then on top of that, you've got the pressure piled on by this president. 
Paul, I think that's right. I mean, Federal Reserve officials are not on the same page, at least not according to the minutes from the July meeting. You know, sort of like how the stock market and the bond market are sending conflicting signals right now. Fed officials were really sharply divided over how to fix the economy or whether or not it even needs to be fixed at all. A couple of Fed officials, they were pushing for a half a percentage point rate cut, and several of them said there shouldn't be a rate cut at all. Now, the Fed ended up splitting the difference and lowering rates by a quarter point. Um, you know, this is not the first time that there's been disagreement at the Fed, of course, but the Fed has more influence. It has more power when it speaks with one voice and then when there is broad agreement. Um, and, you know, it, there are signs that this disagreement at the Fed still exists right now, um, because even though that last meeting that took place before President Trump escalated the trade war with China, it was actually the very next day that President Trump threatened to uh, do another round of tariffs on China. Um, we saw that the Fed president from Kansas City, Esther George. She spoke this morning. She told CNBC that she still doesn't think that it was right to lower interest rates in July. She voted against that move. So maybe it shouldn't be shocking to hear her say that she doesn't think it was a great idea. But then again, it, it really suggests that the trade war has not swayed her and perhaps some of her colleagues. Um, so that raises some questions about what the Fed does next. It'll fall to Jerome Powell to really try to build some consensus before the September meeting. Um, hopefully that's what he focuses on at Jackson Hole and he avoids the temptation to prove President Trump wrong about his golf game. Yeah. <laughs> It's always one uh, other issue uh, out there uh, among many. Matt, thanks so much. Uh, and as Matt was just talking as well, uh, the president, of course, yesterday, we're now going to call him the chosen one. That's Donald Trump. At least Donald Trump thinks so. The president is saying he was forced into starting the trade war. Take a listen. Somebody said it's Trump's trade war. This isn't my trade war. This is a trade war that should have taken place a long time ago by a lot of other presidents. Somebody had to do it. I am the chosen one. Somebody had to do it. So John joins me now from the White House. I love the way he just kind of looked to the skies when that happened as well. I mean, when you speak to his aides, is this just him speaking in jest or is there an underlying truth there that he actually believes? Hard to say, but Paul, I can tell you that this president has said things that he knows are entertaining, uh, and he said them for entertainment value for those who are receiving the message. Uh, perhaps some will take it seriously, uh, some will not, but there's been a lot of discussion here at the White House about religion over the last uh, 24, 48 hours. Some of it has related to the Jewish vote. Uh, some of it has related to other things. So uh, chosen one, anybody who comes from a Christian background understands that uh, those are words that uh, have uh, tended to be associated with Jesus Christ in the Christian Bible. And so uh, the question is, does the president see himself that way? What I can tell you is the president understands that the evangelical vote in the United States 
uh, helped him get elected last time, and he once again needs that evangelical vote. So, in some ways, perhaps the president is trying to speak to those voters, uh, many of whom approve of a number of the things the president has done because uh, there is sort of this connection between the evangelicals in Israel. Uh, we've seen not too long ago the president moving the United States embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, which is seen by some as part of prophecy. So, uh, so if you're going to look for an underlying message, look for a political one and, uh, and understand that the president does want to speak to evangelical voters in the United States as we move closer and closer to the November yeah. election, Paula. Yeah, and interesting that when he was doing that, he was obviously talking about an economic issue, not a political one. And getting to those economics again, you know, John, what is it, right? Tax cuts are might be on, tax cuts are then off. He seems to be waffling. Do you get the sense that his advisors around them told him, look, Congress, given our fiscal situation, our deficit and our debt, uh, Congress is never going to go for any new addition of tax cuts 2.0. Is that what happened there? Yeah, not clear again, but, you know, when they advance and then they retreat, uh, that person is trying to lure you, or so says um, some of the old, old scribes relating to conflict, including political conflict. Uh, what we know about the president is uh, he likes the idea of tax cuts. We know also that there is, in the background here at the White House, a concern that somewhere down the road, perhaps before the next election, there could be a true economic downturn, a possible recession, has been predicted by many. And what to do about that, of course, is the big question. Democrats typically are the ones who go for payroll tax cuts, which is one of those ideas that's been floated. And what we also know is the White House isn't saying there's anything imminent or something they're going to jump on right now, but perhaps down the road they might turn to it as President Obama did in 2011 and when he was trying to uh, spur the economy just a bit. So um, anybody's guess, but the president's talking out of both sides of his mouth on this, and uh, we'll just have to see what comes down the road next. Yeah, it does seem clear that Congress is going to need some kind of a crisis before they start to look uh, at adding uh, more to that deficit. Joe Johns at the White House, appreciate it. Meantime, Britain's Prime Minister Boris Johnson is in talks with Pre French President Emmanuel Macron as they try to break an impasse over Brexit. Now, a short time ago, Mr. Johnson reiterated that Britain would not in any circumstances impose a hard border with customs checks between Ireland and Northern Ireland. Melissa Bell has been watching it all from Paris. And, and Melissa, uh, Macron had some very tough words about that Irish backstop saying, look, this isn't just technical. This is a real issue. And then adding that it was up to Britain to decide its own dis destiny. Melissa, I can't believe it, right? Macron's, after three years of this, Macron's now saying we need to get to a real hard and fast deadline in 30 days, even though the deadline might be uh, October 31st. Uh, he's been quite tough, right? This is on the heels of a presidential statement saying that, look, whatever withdrawal agreement we negotiated, it's done. There's no more renegotiation. Um, is this a negotiating position on the part of the There is no renegotiation. He's been so steadfast in this message over the last few years that uh, you have to understand that it isn't. He's been absolutely determined because his focus is protecting
doubting the credibility of the European project, that what he needed to look at was what happened beyond Brexit. Essentially, the message from both Berlin and Paris on this whistle-stop tour of Boris Johnson has been, the ball is firmly in your court. And if there was a slight difference between Angela Merkel and President Macron, it was because, of course, the Germans are so keen on protecting the German economy from the consequences of a no-deal Brexit. But if you look carefully at what Angela Merkel said, really what she was saying was, the point of the backstop was simply to give Britain time to work out its future relationship with the UK and the UK with the EU rather and particularly to find a trade deal. If that can be done in 30 days then that's great. Both European capitals have repeated to Boris Johnson that the backstop itself is not up for renegotiation. Of course behind all this is the emphasis that London and Paris and Berlin have been putting on the fact that all are ready if they need to be for a no deal Brexit. This is what President Macron had to say just before that working lunch with Boris Johnson earlier. Je veux dire simplement en ami en allié au Royaume-Uni It is solely for the UK to decide its destiny, to decide about the way you will leave the European Union and the basis of the future relationship. We are actively preparing for all the possibilities, including that of an exit without an agreement on October 31st. It's not the choice of the EU, but it is our joint responsibility. what they're saying to Boris Johnson is fine go ahead and take those 30 days and see what you can come up with but essentially we're not going to renegotiate the deal that was negotiated by his predecessor Theresa May Paula and that's where it stands as that countdown continues. Our most bell for us there in Paris. And we have to say that Macron now moves on to that all-important G7 meeting. And that's what we start with when we talk about our stories making headlines around the world right now. That G7 meeting in France this weekend will close without, without an agreement for the first time ever. Until now, a joint communique has always been released at the end of the summit. But this time, French President Emmanuel Macron said if a statement were drafted referring to the Paris Accord, Court, President Trump wouldn't agree to it, so it would be pointless. However, he added, no one reads the communiques anyway. I want everyone to remember what happened at the G7 last year in Canada. A lot of talk about the G7 statement, and then President Trump, again, pulled out of it even when they had a statement. Okay, Chinese state media are reporting that a missing staffer from the British consulate in Hong Kong was detained by police in Shenzhen for, quote, solicitation of prostitution. 28-year-old Simon Cheng went missing about two weeks ago when he was scheduled to return from the Chinese mainland and go back to Hong Kong. The British Foreign Office says it has not been able to contact Cheng since he was detained. Wildfires are devastating parts of the Amazon rainforest, uh, according to Brazil's Space Research Center. The number of fires in the country are now up by 80% this year, with more than half of those in the Amazon region. While the government says the fires were caused by dry weather, environmentalists and experts insist most of them are man-made. With more, Shasta Darlington now joins us live from Sao Paulo. And Shasta, there is a massive issue here, and it's one of this confrontation between the government, who perhaps is even on side with people trying to use fires to clear their land, but of course environmentalists saying uh, this is incredibly dangerous. That's right, Paul. I mean, what, what is obvious is that we have a number of fires ravaging the Amazon right now, many of them set by loggers, ranchers, and farmers. Um, the, that Space Institute, which tracks deforestation, says that there have been 
more than 72,000 fires in Brazil so far this year, and that that is an increase of over 80% over last year. So it's clear that despite this being the typical season for fires, because it's drier, there's less humidity, uh, this is not the normal pace that we've seen in recent years. Um, and in fact, this really hit home here in Sao Paulo earlier this week when at about three in the afternoon, the city was plunged into darkness. And researchers said that this was a combination of some low-lying clouds, but also that smoke coming from nearly 3,000 kilometers away, drifting over the country and really uh, making it look like it was nighttime here in Sao Paulo. Now, environmentalists blame the administration of Jair Bolsonaro. Uh, they say that his constant messages that we need to develop the Amazon, uh, that we need to allow loggers, miners in indigenous territories, and the fact that he has defunded the agencies responsible for cracking down on illegal activity, have really sent the message that anything goes. Um, ironically, Bolsonaro has blamed this recent spate of fires on NGOs. Uh, without any evidence, he said, well, they might be uh, trying to uh, put me in a bad light because I'm defunding them. So the rhetoric has gotten pretty ugly here, Paula. It's ugly, and the collateral damage, of course, is happening to the environment. And while Bolsonaro tends to say that, look, the Amazon is the lifeblood of that economic engine in Brazil, this could have clear consequences, right, in terms of what you are able to use those resources for 10 or 20 years down the road. Absolutely. I mean, there, there, there's the clear environmental debate, but there's also an interesting economic debate going on here um, with the EU and Mercosur just signing this trade deal. Uh, and now a lot of differences and, and controversy coming up over the, the treatment of the Amazon here in Brazil. In fact, Germany and Norway just uh, canceled $70 million of, of investments in the Brazil's Amazon fund, largely because Bolsonaro ha has been uh, disregarding it. Bolsonaro responded to Angela Merkel, well, why don't you go use that money to, to reforest Germany? So this could have an impact on trade deals between e the EU and Mercosur if the perception is that uh, any development here is coming at the, the cost of the Amazon, Paula. All right, uh, Shasta, thanks for laying it all out for us. Uh, good to see you. Appreciate it. Now, coming up on First Move, retail therapy. Finalists talk of recession. Consumers, instead, they're delivering a stellar quarter for retail. And knowledge is power, but South Korea is scrapping intelligence sharing with Japan. We'll tell you what's behind it next. Welcome back to First Move. We are live from the New York Stock Exchange. And something happened this morning. The Dow futures were at first negative. They have now turned to positive. And you know that positive trading has continued with some momentum going through it. Futures, as I said, have strengthened in the last few hours. It's now looking like a solidly higher open after Wednesday's almost 1% rally. And what's going on here? Central bankers are kicking off their meeting in Jackson Hole, Wyoming today. Fed Chair Jay Powell, a lot of pressure on that man. He speaks tomorrow. Now, the meeting could highlight divisions for the Fed over rate policy, the Kansas City Fed president said today. She still believes July's rate cut was not needed because the U.S. economy remains strong. U.S. bond yields briefly inverted Wednesday. That caught the market's attention. And that is over the market's fears that the Fed still will not sustain 
uh, will not support a sustained rate-cutting campaign. Joining me now is Krishna Mamani, is the Vice Chair of Investments at Invesco. Thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Let's deal right with that for a moment. Yes. This, uh, I won't call it indecision, but there seems to be lack of consensus with the Fed, right? How much of an issue is this for you right now? Well, you know, the, the Fed is a large entity, yeah. so there is always dissension. So that's not unusual. But I think the, the Chairman Powell at the moment doesn't really have a choice. The markets are basically telling them that we are imminent uh, recession, maybe coming not in the U.S., perhaps at overseas, and they have to factor that into their own uh, policymaking considerations. And I think they will. This is a grand opportunity for them to reset a couple of uh, faux pas that they have committed. Uh, in 2018, they raised rates when they shouldn't have raised rates. And in July rate cut, he, in the press conference, he basically made it a mid-cycle adjustment. And a recalibration. He, recalibration. <laughs> and he has to walk that back in some way. I, I think he can't give up the store and say that, well, I'm really eager to cut rates. But at the same time, buying some flexibility is something that he has to focus on. And yet, what about that issue, though, that rate cuts aren't needed right now? And here's the thing. If you take those rate cuts now, you don't have any runway left if things get really tense. Well, you, you have plenty of runways. Rates are close to 2%. So I, I think uh, they can cut up several times and uh, they have plenty of room to cut. It's really more a question of will rather than uh, whether they can or not. Okay, and then we get to the issue of how effective would these rate cuts be anyway. There is some debate right now that, you know, even if they move on monetary policy, it is really not going to do much. I mean, look at, we already look at CapEx and it's already suffering. Why is that? What are you seeing inside those numbers? Well, the CapEx situation has been a phenomena ever since the uh, financial crisis. Effectively, when there is not enough demand in the world, people are not going to building new factories and capacities to service that lack of demand. So it, it's something that we'll have to live with. But I think rate cuts do have an impact. Just look at what has happened to the markets and the fact that, uh, you know, if we didn't have rate cuts coming out of the financial crisis would have been very, very difficult. They are not as effective as they used to be, but it is still a very... Uh, a significant weapon that the central bank has. And let's move on to that other part of this equation, though, fiscal policy. In the United States, they're quite hamstrung. We see a debate in Germany now as to whether or not they should move a little bit more on that fiscal policy. What do you think? I mean, I argue sometimes that instead of having things like tax cuts, uh, well, let's dovetail back to that CapEx uh, discussion. Why not do an infrastructure program, which, of course, is still going to, I mean, when it gets to fiscal policy, do you see any movement on that whatsoever? Right. Unfortunately, with a divided Congress, we have, we have lots of uh, asks, but I don't think we are going to get any. And I think the only possibility that we have of getting anything is probably a payroll tax, because that's much easier to do. It didn't work do. so well the last time for Obama, though. No. I, I, again, I don't think uh, payroll taxes are a panacea, uh, but at the same time, I think they help support consumption. And helping support consumption because of the tariffs that have be be effectively been a tax on the consumer, I think that's one way of undoing that a little bit. In terms of whether or not we are talking ourselves into a recession, what do you see? What does the data tell you? Do you think we may hit a recession, if not this year, then next year? Well, no, we don't think we'll hit a recession, at least in the U.S. We think we still have another few years on the cycle. Few years. You're uh, telling this late cycle, you're telling me in 2021, we're still going to be a growing economy. Yeah, our call beginning of the year was five more years, and we are still uh, <laughs> sticking with that call. It, okay. it may sound a little incongruous relative to what's happening in the rest of the world, but what the retail data yesterday showed that the consumption level, employment level, income growth in the U.S. is enough. 
there's enough economic momentum for us to kind of last a few more years. Unless the Fed commits a policy error, which it was on the verge of doing in 2018. Before I let you go, strong dollar, emerging markets having a really hard time. Mm -hmm. Do you worry at all about any kind of contagion in that space? Well, emerging markets in a strong dollar environment are not going to work very well. Having said that, our expectation is that China at some point will turn on the taps in a more meaningful way than they have done from a stimulus standpoint. And when that happens, growth in emerging markets is going to stabilize. But it doesn't worry you in terms of us getting to that pressure point where we're talking about a global crisis again. Oh, no, no, not at all. I, I think <laughs> Pretty the, clear. Yeah, but the most amount of debt that we have is really in China, and it's a controlled currency, and in a, it's a really a domestic market from a policy standpoint. So they have lots of levers to deal with those issues. So thanks so much for coming in as we continue to await what they do at Jackson Hole. Should be an interesting speech tomorrow. Uh, indeed, it's a, <laughs> a momentous speech. That's what I'm looking for. Okay, fingers crossed. We didn't get much out of the last press conference, I will add, but you know, uh, thanks so much. Hope. Yeah, <laughs> appreciate you being with us. Appreciate Thank you. That. And we are moments away, of course, from that opening bell. A lot of excitement here as we await to see those Dow futures, which are now pointing higher. We'll be right back in a moment. this month on fears that that trade war, of course, will tip global economies into recession. And China, of course, warned again today that if their U.S. retaliates in September with those uh, tariffs, they will retaliate back again. Now, in the meantime as well, Fed members are expected to talk more about that trade war at their conference in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, beginning today. U.S. bonds uh, are up over 2% as that meeting gets underway. Meantime, U.S. stocks performed well this year thanks in part to strong corporate buybacks. But new numbers out today show the rate of buybacks is now slowing, and that does make sense, with companies repurchasing 13% less stock in the second quarter compared to a year ago. And we go to those global movers now. L Brands down. The company beat expectations on profit but missed on sales. Those were weighed down by its flagship brand, Victoria's Secret, which saw a 6% decline in same-store sales. That slide continues. Nordstrom's, meantime, was up. The Seattle-based retailer's quarterly profit beat Wall Street estimates. The company said it had cut costs and cleared inventory and had a nice little uptick on uh, online sales as well. Meantime, Dick's Sporting Goods, goods it was up. The sports retailer raised its full-year forecast after sales and revenue for the quarter beat estimates. And our Claire Sebastian joins us with more on that. It's interesting as well that they had that kind of look towards the future, even though they're obviously under the gun a little bit in this trade war with China. Yeah, I think that's a that's an interesting turn of phrase, uh, Paula, because yes, this was a very uh, strong earnings report relative to expectations, especially, and you see they're joining the ranks of the retailers experiencing those really big stock moves off the back of earnings. Their same store sales, sales were up 3.2%, the best number since 2016, e-commerce up 21%, and as you say, uh, they, they uh, upped their guidance for the year. But the big question around these earnings, Paula, uh, is 
whether or not Dix will make an announcement on on whether they're going to stop all gun sales. This is something uh, that uh, the, the company has been rife with speculation around this. You'll remember back in 2018, after the Parkland shooting, after it emerged that the gunman there bought his gun at a Dick's Sporting Goods. The CEO stopped all sales of assault-style weapons. He raised the minimum age for buying a firearm to 21. They did face some backlash from gun manufacturers. In particular, they did see some sales go down in the quarter following that. But they have now been testing pulling gun sales sales out of 125 of their 700 or so stores, uh, and they are conducting a review of this. They said in their earnings report that the review is continuing, but we expect that we might hear more on this uh, in their call, which is happening in about half an hour. A big move that would be, Paula, for a mainstream retailer, one of the biggest gun retailers in the U.S. Yeah, an important move to make, of course, all eyes on Wall Street with that. And yet, what is this issue? I mean, Dick Sporting Goods also willing to really get out there and perhaps be ahead of the curve, right, even if they do take that potential hit to business. Yeah, they've really been vocal on this. The CEO uh, telling CNN that, um, you know, it was it was it was essentially an emotional response to this. We've heard that, that Walmart, even before Parkland, pulled uh, assault style weapons out of their stores, but they blamed sluggish sales. Dix is specifically linking this uh, to to the kind of prevalence of mass shootings and the fact that this gun was used in the Parkland shooting. I think when it comes to the review, though, uh, there is a bit more of a focus on sales. Uh, they, they say that uh, the gun business is OK. It's not great. We know that gun sales have been falling uh, under President Trump while they, they were rising uh, under President Obama. It tends to be uh, the gun sales rise when people are worried about about more congressional uh, you know legislation that perhaps could crack down on things uh, like background checks. And they're not the only one uh, that's under pressure. Porter Walmart has been under pressure uh, to, to do something about its own gun policy. They have said uh, that they're not, that, you know, they're just looking at it at the moment and they welcome the debate going on in Congress. But we're in a moment right now when, when these retailers are really under scrutiny for, for their gun sales. Yeah, under scrutiny where this becomes, as you said, more of an emotional uh, response, a societal response rather than an economic one. Our Claire Sebastian for us there live in New York. Appreciate it. And as we were just talking about those incredible American retailers, there is nothing that will get them down apparently in this earnings season. You're talking about Lowe's, Walmart, Target, Home Depot. The evidence is showing that those U.S. shoppers are doing the heavy lifting in this U.S. economy. For more on what's happening, I am joined by Michael Lasser. He is retail analyst at UBS. I mean, this has kind of shocked me in the sense that, yes, we knew the retail uh, the retail was out there, was going to be strong. But remember, it wasn't that long ago where a lot of uh, retailers were getting hit just behind the curve on online sales. And yet now you even have companies like Home Depot really blowing it, blowing all those estimates out of the water. What's going on as far as you can see? As far as we can see, there's a few things that are going on. Number one, the foundations of consumer spending are, are very healthy with a good labor market, wages are slowly rising, and that's driving consumers to spend. Two, a lot of these retailers have made significant investments over the last few years, and those investments are starting to pay off. And three, this, the, the divide between those retailers that are doing well and those retailers that are not is widening. Consumers are choosing to do business with a select number of retailers, and they're focusing more of their spending on those retailers because those retailers are offering value and convenience and removing the friction from doing business with them. We think that that trend continues and that'll benefit the select few. You know, Michael, this has been quite a retail reckoning, I'd say, over the last 10 or 15 years. In your estimation, and that's all because of Amazon and online sales, where do you think we are in this cycle? Are we mid-cycle on this? Are we end-cycle on this? So there's a, a couple elements to that question. Number one, 
We've seen a very good uh, economic cycle for a while. The question from here is, does some of the macroeconomic uncertainties weigh on how uh, consumers have confidence to spend? And, and do their employers uh, remain in the hiring mode to continue to support that strong foundation of consumer spending? And second, where are we from a rationalization perspective on retail? There's going to be more stores that close. And what that will do is shift market share to those that remain. And so the strong will get stronger and the weak are going to go away. And in terms of picking those companies, though, you know, I was interested to see that even Walmart is shifting its strategy a couple of years ago. You know, their online sales have really come on quite strongly. And yet I was in the mall the other day. I'm not going to mention the stores. There were some that you could shoot a cannon through and no one would have been touched. I mean, where do you think the dividing line is there while some people have been able to make that transition and other retailers have not been? Yeah, I think the appeal of shopping in the mall has declined over the years. There will be a reformulation of the U.S. shopping mall. It'll be more of an entertainment experience as they add more restaurants and other uh, entertainment-type venues. And what that, what that will do is hopefully stabilize traffic, but there's just too much capacity in mall-based retailers at this point. And we're likely to see that, that the rationalization of that continue. But again, what that will do is push more of the shopping towards those well-positioned retailers, particularly the ones that are off-mall and make it very convenient for them to shop and do things like buy online and pick up in store. And that's where uh, retailers like Walmart and Target and Home Depot are doing particularly well. Right. So you match that convenience, but you're also going into the bricks and mortar to go pick it up. And people seem to like that. Um, I have to ask you that American consumer things are going well now. We again had a fewer than expected jobless, jobless claims in the United States uh, today. Uh, and yet most people said that, look, it was global expansion that was going to do the trick for these retailers. How important do you see that going forward? Or do you think it's about the American consumer all the way, all the time? I think the American consumer is is uh, is critical. Uh, I think what we're seeing from recent indications, based on what happened in the second quarter, and a lot of the commentary around the start to back to school shopping, is that uh, spending remains quite healthy, and that's important because there tends to be a high correlation between back to school shopping and holiday spending. If consumers feeling good now, they're likely going to feel good a couple months from now. Now there are some uncertainties. We're going to see price increases push through as a result of the tariffs. And so consumers are going to have to make more trade-offs. So if the price of a sweater, a baseball glove, and a couch all go up at the same time, where's that consumer going to make the trade-off? And we'll see some retailers benefit from that and others lose from that. Yeah, and thank you for mentioning that, Michael, because obviously that's also weighing uh, when these companies look at what those tariffs might mean and what it might mean to the uh, wallets of the old American consumers. Uh, Michael Lasser, we'll continue uh, to discuss this with you over the coming weeks, especially as that all-important back-to-school results start to come into the United States. Appreciate it. Now, up next, old resentments but new disagreements. Relations between South Korea and Japan take a turn for the worse. We'll have all the details when we get back. back. South Korea has ended an agreement on military intelligence sharing with Japan. Tensions between the two countries have been rising in the past few months. You know, but this marks a dramatic escalation and threatens to unsettle what has been a unified stance, at least 
towards North Korea. David Culver has more. David, this is an escalation and quite a significant one. While what's at the heart of this issue has been economic, clearly, clearly this is now going a step further. Yeah, absolutely, Paul. And it's got historical and rather painful roots that I'll explain in just a moment. But first, the very latest with the ending of this intel sharing pact between South Korea and Japan. This is a decision that came out of South Korea's National Security Council. They have decided that the pact that has been in place since 2016 should no longer go forward. So essentially, that would limit the amount of intel shared between South Korea and Japan. Why is that important? Well, look what's happening here on the peninsula. We've been reporting over the past several weeks of the numerous missile test launches coming from North Korea. Japan helps South Korea in monitoring the northern part of the peninsula using their satellites. That's classified information that's shared between the two countries. That could be limited with the ending of this agreement. agreement. So why do it? Well, we heard from the deputy director of the National Security Council who explains the motivation. Take a listen. Excluding South Korea from the whitelist has caused a significant change in the security cooperation environment between the two countries. Under these circumstances, the government judged that it would not be in our national interest to keep the agreement in place, which was signed for the purpose of exchanging sensitive military information for security. All right, so all of this stems from that bitter trade war, Paula, that you mentioned that is underway between South Korea and Japan. And that is rooted in a painful past, going back to the early part of the 20th century. That's when Japan occupied the peninsula. Many Koreans were forced into labor. And as a result of that, there was a 1965 agreement that seemed to have settled things. Well, just last year, the high court right here in South Korea ruled in favor of those workers getting compensation from Japanese companies. That angered Japan a great deal. And what some perceive to be retaliation for that Supreme Court decision, in early July, they decided to limit the amount of exports of three chemicals that are used particularly in manufacturing smartphones, especially when it comes to memory trip chips in particular. So think about Samsung, think about SK Hynix. These are major companies that produce more than half of the global market's memory chips. So this is a big impact on them. Then earlier this month, Japan went a step further and they removed South Korea from their preferred trading list partners. Right. And South Korea, just a few weeks ago, did the same. And so you have this back and forth that is only escalating and getting more tense and now is impacting military intel. Yeah, which uh, the uh, White House uh, is, of course, uh, reacting and saying that they hope that they can work this out. But again, uh, you did a very good job there in laying out the roots of this. They had worked for decades, really, to try and get on secure footing. And this has definitely taken them back a little bit. David, you'll continue right. to cover that for us. Appreciate it. And take a walk with me now into the boardroom for our brief. Global banks are calling for a peaceful resolution to protests in Hong Kong. HSBC, Standard Chartered, and the Bank of East Asia ran adverts in local newspapers in the city. The bank stress the need to protect Hong Kong's status as a global financial hub amid months long protests between the city's government and pro-democracy activists. The Irish low-cost carrier Ryanair says no flights departing from British or Irish airports were disrupted on Thursday. Now this comes as some of its UK-based pilots began a 48-hour strike. The airline was able to stop Irish pilots, but lost a legal fight to stop strikes in London. Qantas is now testing the limits of flying extra long haul. Those are not 
words that I like to hear. It plans to stage 20-hour trial, 20-hour trial flights carrying only Qantas employees to find out how passengers cope with some, such long periods in the air. The trial flights will run from New York and London to Sydney. Qantas has said it hopes to start direct flights on both routes in 2022. I hope by that time anyone planning to put toddlers on those airplanes have since grown up. Now we look at the industries of tomorrow as our Dr. Sanjay Gupta visits a factory, a company, pardon me, in Israel that's cutting out the cow and growing its own steaks. You'll want to see this. It's a product they hope will hit the market in just a few years. Chef Amir Elon. He works his magic in the kitchen. Now, while this may have the appearance of a restaurant kitchen, he's at a startup outside of Tel Aviv. Welcome to Aleph Farms. There you go, your minute steak, sir. <laughs> Enjoy. The meat the company CEO is enjoying came from their lab, grown in a petri dish. We use animal cells as a starter for growing the meat. We just make the growing process more efficient. Some view what's taking place here as a race to crack the code of meat. Animal meat, that is. In the intensive factory farming facilities of today, we lost that connection with the animal. And we believe that that being a given fact, we'd better just grow the steak directly rather than use animals as mere machines to produce steaks. This is how it works. First, cells are isolated from a living cow. They are then frozen until they're needed. The cells are eventually thawed and given nutrients and then placed in an environment that mimics conditions inside the animal. As the cells multiply, connective muscle tissue begins to form that ultimately grows into steak. Right now, each piece of meat developed at Alla Farms costs about $50, but the company expects that price to come down by the time the product is ready for the market, which is within the next three to four years. The big question is, will consumers bite? Advances in this field are also happening in the United States, where the Food and Drug Administration and the Department of Agriculture have agreed to share regulatory oversight. Jan Dukevich of Johns Hopkins University believes the pursuit of, quote, clean meat also has major global economic implications. If you're talking about cellular agriculture, that is to say clean meat or cell-based meat, here we're talking about a very real disruption of the food system as we know it. They're saying we can get something like meat without the animal. We're trying to make the animal obsolete, not the entire value chain. So this could be read as a major threat to the incumbent meat industry. Well, that's a new term we're going to be talking about, right? Clean meat. Okay, coming up on First Move, more layoffs for U.S. steelworkers, despite Trump saying the industry is thriving because of his tariffs. What is going wrong? We'll have more when we come back. Are you crypto crazy or are you crypto crazy? All next week on First Move, we're going to be talking to a whole host of crypto experts. We want to try and separate fact from fiction. The question is, what do you want to know? Contact us at Chesley CNN. I want to hear from you. Remember, all next week, we're crypto crazy on First Move. 
We will wait for that. Welcome back here. In the meantime, from the New York Stock Exchange, U.S. Steel is temporarily laying off about 200 workers as the industry continues to struggle. The company's market value has fallen by a third this year. That's despite the Trump administration placing tariffs on steel from some other countries. Vanessa Yurkevich is in Michigan for us. Vanessa, okay, full disclosure, I am a steel town girl. I literally worked at the steel mill when I was a student, and we're not talking the office. I was on the mill floor. I know what this means in terms of this being a livelihood for people. So how significant are these layoffs, and what kind of insight are you getting into the industry as a whole? Hi, Paula. Well, we're hearing here on the ground that people are really confused and shocked by this news because they thought that these tariffs were supposed to boost this steel economy here as well as spur job growth. But what we're hearing from U.S. Steel is that they are temporarily laying off 200 workers at this facility and they're citing ongoing changing market conditions in the steel industry. And this is very different, Paula, from what we've been hearing from the president who has very much touted the success of the steel industry and him bringing it back. But we spoke to one uh, city official here who says he's seeing no sign of that. And we spoke to him and another community leader who are worried that these temporary layoffs could in fact become permanent layoffs. We assumed that we'd have uh, more production. Uh, and in fact, we thought it'd have the reverse effect. There'd be more hiring taking place, you know, here locally. And yes, it was a shock. It was a shock. And uh, uh, I, I, I'm hoping that things reverse quickly. It's a recession when your neighbor's laid off. It's a depression when you get laid off. And uh, it hasn't changed in the past 38 or 39 years. And, uh, you know, there's all kind of emotions to go through. You know, you get concerned when you hear 200 people are laid off. So it is a concern. When you hear 200 temporary layoffs here, that may not sound like a lot when you compare it the, to the couple thousand people who are working here at this factory. But what is concerning people here in the community, Paula, is the fact that this is an indicator of what's going on with the industry, that in fact, there's a downturn instead of it picking back up again. You look at U.S. steel prices trading this time last year, about $30 a share. Now they're $12 a share. And when we asked U.S. steel when these temporary layoffs would come, online. They said that they didn't have an answer. They don't know when, Paula. All right, Vanessa, thanks so much for bringing this story to us. We really appreciate it. And that's it for First Move. We have a good little rally going on here in the markets. We'll continue to cover this in a couple of hours on uh, The Express. In the meantime, I leave you in the cable hands of iDesk with Robin Curno, and it starts after a short break. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.